Okay, good. Yeah, go. <laughs> good morning. How's everybody doing? Oh, good. Well, <laughs> my name's Janelle, and this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of John. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to go ahead and open up to John chapter 8, uh, that those are the verses that we're reading today are up there on the screen. Before we start, I want to ask a question. Where does natural light come from? Like, not the light that we've made in this room, but if we wanted to go stand in the light... Where would we go? Yeah, we go outside, stand under the sun, right? Okay, good. So in Genesis, we're on the same page. Uh, So in Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. And darkness covered deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of those waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and then he separated the light from darkness. Does anybody know off the top of their head the days, the order of the days of creation? They're like, (laughs) well, yeah, so we've got day one, light is created. Day two, the sky is created. Day three, the seas and dry land are created. And they're separated along with the plants and trees. And then day four, the sun and the moon and the stars are created. So there's something strange that's biblical that we just read and that I just shared with all of you that I don't think we always notice. Day one, light is created. And day four, the sun is created. Did the biblical authors make a mistake? Did they mean to put the sun in on day one and try to slip it in on day four and hoped we wouldn't notice? Did they forget to proofread the Bible the way I forget to proofread my text messages? (laughs) Or is the light on day one representing something else? Is it representing something besides the sun? Is the sun simply a tool or God's torch and the light from day one is something else? When God says, let there be light, what does he mean? It's not the sun. That's not here yet. Maybe the light from day one is not a created thing, but from God himself. In John chapter one, we read a poem. And the poem that was written in chapter one is a key to our map of understanding the gospel of John. It uses phrases that will be found throughout the entire gospel and really throughout entire scripture that contain meanings beyond the surface level. To review, we learned from this poem, this was way back, we talked about this, that dark can represent death and life outside of God. That light can represent life and life with God. And water can represent cleansing and new beginnings. Last week in the beginning of chapter 8, we read about a woman who was caught in adultery and the religious leaders who used her as a trap. And they were hoping to use her sin as a way to trap Jesus. It obviously didn't work. The traps never work. And in their failure was a beautiful passage about God's great grace that's offered to everyone. Last week's teaching was great. I highly recommend it for anyone who didn't get a chance to hear it, and especially the way it ended with Nora leading that song. It was a beautiful, beautiful representation of that grace. So now, since the beginning of chapter 7 in John, Jesus has been at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
With Judaism at that time, there are three feasts that everyone would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There's the Passover feast. That's the big one. There's the Pentecost feast, and there's the Feast of Tabernacles. Right now is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where Jesus is. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a time where they would repre- that they would thank God for the autumn harvest that they were getting. They would thank God for this, ho- this autumn harvest, and they would also remember their time wandering in the desert. And this is where we need some Old Testament context, which is my favorite part, because it's really exciting when we get to unpack this. On Sunday mornings, we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, which is good, and I I love the New Testament, but if we spend just a little time reading the Old Testament during the week, it can take these New Testament stories from black and white and into color. So let's give some Old Testament context here. We're going back to Exodus when God is using Moses to lead the Israelites to freedom from the Egyptians. God brought them out of slavery from the Egyptians through a series of miracles that culminated with the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. This is when the slaves were led through chaotic waters, chaotic waters into new life of freedom on the other side. This is a pretty famous story that I think most of us know to a degree. And once the Israelites are free on the other side, they immediately begin to rebel against God. They don't just do this once. They don't just do this twice. They do it over and over and over. Eventually, instead of being able to go straight to the promised land, they are given what is essentially a 40-year timeout in the wilderness and desert, forced to wander. Their life becomes a grueling existence in which they have no choice but to trust God in order to survive this place and to get to the promised land. So where is God during this time in the wilderness? Does he take a 40-year time out? Amidst the Israelites grumbling and amidst their rebellion and in the middle of their time out, where is God? God is present with them He provides them with food and water, and he guides them on where they should go next. Exodus 13, 21 says, The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or night. So during the day, they were guided by a pillar of cloud, and at night, they were guided by a pillar of fire. This pillar of light was so important because in the wilderness and in the pitch black, they had a light to guide them. They did not have to walk in darkness because God was there and he was guiding them on where they should go next. And so while Jesus and the other Israelites are at the Feast of Tabernacles, they're retelling this story over and over It's a story that is retold year after year and time and time again. It's a story they know by heart. You know, when you watch a movie and you can quote a line before it's said, it's kind of like that. Whenever I do that, I think I'm going to impress the people around me, but apparently it's annoying (laughs) and rude. (laughs) And at the Feast of Tabernacles, these great pillars with bowls of oil on top of these pillars were lit to create giant lanterns. And these great lanterns are lit to remind everyone of the pillar of fire that led everyone through the wilderness. And in a place where there are no street lamps, night is truly dark. These large lanterns made the temple glow and shine in the middle of Jerusalem and in the middle of the world full of chaos. And at the end of the festival, there would be a ceremony where they would put these lights out. 
and with large crowds of people around, these lights would be put out to symbolize that they still hadn't received what they were looking for, a free promised land and a righteous king to guide them. So it is in this moment where these lights are being ceremonially put out that some speculate Jesus says what he says in verse 12 of chapter 8. So let's read that together. Jesus spoke to the people once more, and he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You see how the context makes a difference there? Jesus is declaring himself to be the pillar of light that guides us. Jesus is saying we don't have to light these massive tortures anymore to remember what God did. We can follow Jesus and experience what God is doing now, today, simply by following him. So let's keep reading the next section of verses. The Pharisees replied to Jesus, that sounds really cool. No, they said, you're making these claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I'm not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? They asked. So let me stop right here with that when they ask, where's your father? This isn't like, hey, where's your dad? Are you okay? This is, um, we know your scandalous birth story. We know what happened with your mom. So where's your dad? Do you want to talk about that? Because we know. Let's talk about it in front of everyone. So Jesus answers that. Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. You think you do, but you don't. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. That's where those torches were. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Could take a couple weeks probably on that section of verses alone, but we're not going to. But that's just kind of the way John is. It's dense and it's awesome. So the religious leaders are saying that what Jesus is saying about himself is not valid. It doesn't count. And they're saying this because according with the law of Moses, you need two people as witnesses for your testimony. And this came into play last week with the section of verses we went over. Over and over, we see that the religious leaders are experts at using the law to get what they want. They are experts at using the law to get their own way. But notice what Jesus is saying in verse 19. He says that since you don't know me, you don't know my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. He's saying that you know the law. There's no doubt about that. But you don't know God. Jesus is pointing out that while they are technically part of the same religion, their loyalties could not be further apart. One is loyal to the law and one is loyal to God. We learn from these verses that we can trust Jesus to guide us. In, G, in verse 12, Jesus made a bold declaration that he is the light of the world and he invites us to follow him. 
He goes on to answer the religious leader's interrogation by reiterating that his authority comes directly from God. His testimony is valid because God is his other witness. So we can trust Jesus to guide us because he has the same credibility and dependability as God. We can trust Jesus to guide us because he is the Messiah that came to rescue us. We can trust Jesus to guide us because he loves us. We are in a culture that constantly is begging and demanding our trust and loyalty. We have politicians and political parties demanding it. Trust me. Vote for me. Never doubt me. We have name brands demanding our loyalty. Trust our brand. Buy our brand. Never doubt our brand. We have 24-hour news demanding it. Trust our news. Watch our channel. Never doubt our agenda. We have social media demanding it. Trust our content. Watch our videos. Never doubt our agenda. It's loud. You hear it. You hear them all screaming and clawing for your attention. They're screaming and clawing for our loyalty and they're vying for our trust. They promise to care for us and I think they say that hoping we won't notice them grabbing for our wallets. What if there was a way that we could escape all of that without ever having to leave? Our trust and our loyalty is valuable. That's why so many powerful companies and political figures beg for it. And it is why it is of the utmost importance we truly consider where we put our trust and our loyalty. I know that there's a lot of noise out there. I know. But if we could tune into the voice of Jesus, if we could tune into it like a radio frequency for just a second, we could hear him calling out to us. We would hear his call for rescue in a broken world. We would hear the sounds of grace and hope. Jesus is more powerful than any politician. We don't need to put our trust in politicians or political parties to save us because they can't. They won't. Only Jesus can do that. We don't need to put our trust in any of the things in this world to save us because they can't. They won't. We can trust Jesus to guide us. Let's give him our valuable trust and loyalty because his only agenda is our heart. Let's keep reading, starting with verse 21. Later, Jesus said to them, again, I'm going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I'm going. And the people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What, what does he mean you cannot go where I'm going? Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. Jesus knows who he is. 
He has not stood here unsure of himself or unsure of how he would answer these questions for a moment under severe interrogation from a large crowd. I know when I was at school and I'd like get called on, I'd forget everything, like my name, what class we're in, everything. But I mean, here Jesus just handles this like a pro. And we have a different picture here with Jesus than what we would maybe experience ourselves. Because in verse 23, Jesus reiterates that he's not like everyone else. He ain't from around here, but in the best way possible. Here Jesus is saying that the religious leaders will die in their sin unless they believe in him. And this is another bold claim from Jesus. And we also notice that in verse 24, Jesus uh, refers to himself as the I am again. And remember this Old Testament context with Moses speaking to the burning bush and the burning bush giving himself the name of the I am. Jesus is referring to himself as that again. So we learn from this point and from these verses a, a point that I think is just as important as the first point, and that is we can trust Jesus to guide us. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has invited us to follow him. He's invited us to trust him. And trusting in Jesus is a choice within our control. So much of this world is outside of our control, and that can feel a little scary. Whenever my kids get sick, I realize how little control I have over anything. And there are certain events in our life that can bring that control into sharp focus. Maybe it's the war we read about in the news. Maybe it's things we're experiencing with our job or lack of job or when a loved one gets sick. Maybe it's when we get hit over the head with grief and we've lost someone we thought we could never lose. Whatever the circumstance, the lack of control can feel incredibly overwhelming. But that's not to say we don't have control over anything. We have control over where we put our trust and our loyalty. Trust is a choice. It's not a feeling that we have to hope for or wait for. It's, something that, it's not something we have to wait for somebody else to do. It's our choice, a choice that's within our power right now. And the thing is, according to Jesus, the choice to trust him is a life or death choice. I didn't write the rules. I didn't write this. That's his words. And that there are only two paths. One path that leads to life and the other death. And the Bible indicates no third way. To clarify, I don't believe that this is some threat that Jesus is leveling on the crowd. The death and the desolation, it's already here. This is just the end of the road for a broken world that has chosen to live without God. This isn't a threat. It's the offer of rescue. It's Noah in the ark on a cloudy day reaching his hand out to us. It's the dry ground in the middle of a Red Sea. It's the pillar of light in the pitch black darkness of the wilderness. It's the only path to freedom and the only guide to life. We can trust Jesus to guide us because Jesus has the same credibility and dependability as God. We can trust Jesus to guide us because he is the Messiah that came to rescue us. We can trust Jesus to guide us because he loves us. He finds us lovable. Let's keep reading and see what else we can learn, starting with verse 25. Who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, 
the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Okay, so this is pretty cool. Again, Jesus is very confident in who he is. And there are no questions that the religious leaders can ask him that will trip him up or confuse him. And Jesus goes on to say that he's not acting out of his own accord or will, but he's acting out of obedience to God's plan. And he's doing what God has told him to do. And Jesus points this out. Jesus points out that his complete and total obedience will be fulfilled with his death on the cross. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what God has asked him to do, and he knows he's going to do it. And we learn from this, our third and most important point from these verses, that we can trust Jesus to guide us. If we believe in Jesus and we follow Jesus, then we can expect that obedience to Jesus will lead us to some pretty uncomfortable places. But we can also believe that it's going to include sacrificial love for our fellow human being. And note that Jesus also says in these verses that God will not abandon him. That means that we can trust for God to not abandon us. We can trust that God will guide us the same way he guided the rebellious Israelites in the desert. Is Jesus good? Then we can trust Jesus to guide us. Does Jesus have a plan for us? Then we can trust Jesus to guide us. Does Jesus love us? Then we can trust Jesus to guide us. Can Jesus redeem the worst parts of our life? Then we can trust Jesus to guide us. Does Jesus have a plan to save us? Are you saying it in your head? Then we can trust Jesus to guide us. Jesus might guide us to some crazy places. We might know this from experience or from what we read in the Gospels, but no matter the circumstances, we know that Jesus has a plan to set all things right. Jesus took the worst case scenario of being killed on the cross by the Roman oppressors. He took what looked like complete and utter failure, and he took that failure and turned it into the largest symbol of hope and life that the world has ever seen. We don't have to be afraid of the uncomfortable places that Jesus will guide us to. When we find ourselves in those uncomfortable places, we can say to God, I saw what you did with the cross. I saw how you redeemed that. I can trust you to redeem this too. And maybe we find ourselves in a situation where we're like, yeah, but I'm living worst case scenario. My life is going through worst case scenario right now. Well, guess what? Worst case scenario is God's specialty. He's got this. We have already won. It is finished. And because of this, we know that whatever painful places that we might follow Jesus to, we can trust him to guide us. 
We can trust Jesus to guide us because he has the same credibility and dependability as God. We can trust Jesus to guide us because he is the Messiah who has come to save us. We can trust Jesus to guide us because Jesus loves us. He finds us lovable. Here's another thing that I love from this interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders. I feel like, well, they may have been congratulating each other, like, good job, yes, great questions, on this brilliant interrogation. The truth of what Jesus revealed to the crowd the truth of what Jesus revealed impacted the people who were truly listening. In verse, 40, in verse 30, what does it say? It says, many believed him. See, it didn't matter what kind of threat the Pharisees thought they were to Jesus' ministry. Jesus may have been answering their questions, but he was talking to the crowd who would listen. And the crowd heard him. And the crowd believed him. Jesus illuminated the truth of who he was and there was no undoing what the light revealed. We have nothing to be afraid of. We don't have to be afraid of this world. We don't have to be afraid of what this world says about Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of where Jesus will guide us. Jesus is on our side. He's powerful and he's loving. His bright light will guide us home. His bright light will not abandon us. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that phrase mean? That was something I always really struggled with growing up in church because I heard it a lot and felt like I was supposed to understand it, but I really didn't know what it meant to live that out. And sometimes that fear I had would be compounded when I would talk to overzealous Christians who would be like, are you following Jesus? I'm like, I think so, but are you really following him? <laughs> and what I wanted to say was, honestly, I don't know. I've never seen him in real life. I don't really get this. Probably not. But instead, I would respond, definitely, are you, though? <laughs> it's a good cycle. <laughs> so this is how I would describe following Jesus. Uh, the other day, Matt and I watched the movie Titanic from the 90s, and there's a famous quote that's said by Jack and Rose, the characters, over and over. Uh, if you jump, I jump. If you jump, I jump, remember? So that can be our model for how we follow Jesus. Jesus, if you love God, I love God. Jesus, if you trust God, I trust God. Jesus, if you show sacrificial love, I'll show sacrificial love. Jesus, if you show grace to people who don't deserve it, I'll show grace to people who don't deserve it. Jesus, you know who you are. I know who I am. This is how we follow him, by copying what he did, by following the example that he left for us in the Gospels. So as we leave here today, let's remember the three points that we learned. The first point was that we can trust Jesus to guide us. The second point was that we could trust Jesus to guide us. And the third and most important point, so we can trust Jesus to guide us. Right on? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are, for not abandoning us even when we're rebellious, for being that light in the dark places. So we put our trust and our loyalty, which is valuable. We put them, we give them to you. We give you our trust above all else. We give you our loyalty above all else. 
We ask for you to guide us. Guide us in this day, in this week, in every step of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
If anybody would like prayer for anything, I'm up at the front. Or if you want to talk and I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Uh, And I'll be up here and a few other people as well. So let's say this together. Here we go. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. In Jesus Christ, hold firm. Take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace, children of God.